All right, let's let's do this let's now. Do this. Let's go. So we can, okay. All right, we're we're just gonna go. We are ready. We're ready to go whenever. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column, column, column. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column podcast. This is your Kwanzaa Hanukkah Christmas holiday edition. If that offends you. <laughs> you left out Festivus, Good. so already. Festivus. I'm, well, the holiday for the I don't care. Us. Yeah. I don't care. We don't acknowledge that. You're, you know what? This is just the Christmas edition. Yeah. Period. Oh, it's Donald Trump's End America now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like that. that. Pulling the war, off heads. The war scarves. on Christmas is over. And the, the Donald has won. Uh, I'm I'm Camille Foster of Freethink. Uh, this is uh, your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the the media and the people who make it, and occasionally ourselves, always ourselves. Uh, this is episode 38. Uh, this program will contain uh, all sorts of profane language and uh, respectful commentary and thoughtful, insightful observations about the news cycle and some obscure pop culture references and I don't know, whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm joined by Michael Moynihan of Vice News. Hi, Matt Welch who is the editor-at-large of Reason Magazine. Gentlemen, how are you today? Hi. This is great. Oh, my God. Yeah. That was like uh, Hi. That was some sort of Bob Ross uh, creepiness <laughs> there. That's... I think it's the morning. We don't do morning takes. We don't do mornings. Don't in, no, do in, mornings. in context for everyone, because the holiday's coming up, um, I'll be traveling uh, uh, the the holiday. Uh, they can figure it out. Yeah. Um, if they're fra- if they're fans of Ron Karenga, that might be uh, Kwanzaa. Uh, the great uh, Ron Karenga, who uh, was arrested for burning women in his basement. <laughs> uh, but uh, let he who has not been there exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but uh, no, no, it is it is a special week because. Uh, we're all traveling. We're all yes. going around. Christmas is coming up. So for you, dear listeners, because we mm. love you so much, mm-hmm. um, despite the fact that you love Matt and Camille and probably dislike me, if you're like the average listener, <laughs> uh, I get a lot of you shit. The, you got the literary fan club. That's Wayne. not true. I get, and, you know, I get and the, the accents. They love the accents. Yeah, no. I get, exactly. But it's like, you know, I get into politics, it's, which is the purpose nah. of this podcast. <laughs> it's like, you know, you're not, you don't, you're not Rothbard enough. I don't know where these people come from. I'm just like a normal human being. I'm sorry. Um, I don't write film reviews about how there are too many black people in the films. <laughs> That's late Rothbard, if you guys are paying attention out there. Uh, the super racist Rothbard at the end. Um, so no, we're recording this. We're recording this on Monday at 11.30 a.m. I'm drinking a Dunkin' Donuts coffee. Typically, you'll be hearing this broadcast where we were lubricated uh, with amber-colored liquids mm-hmm. that are uh, we're drinking in, uh, in no, great I'm, quantities. I'm just on 50 milligrams of, uh, of Adderall right now. Oh, you're on 50? Wow, that's a I'm lot. You take a lot. Flying high. You are Flying on that? Yeah. No, wow. it's not really. For, it's not fifty. It's forty. So you, you just, it's still a lot. I don't want to. I don't want to derail things here. <laughs> but but like you two, friends, we've done a lot of these uh, podcasts. Yeah, sure. At various times, you're like on Adderall all the time, both of you. I mean, I'm, that's not true. That's not true for me. That didn't sound like I'm, a voice of a man. I'm, I'm no, because it gets really high. No, 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 I'm, I'm pretty. Come on. <laughs> that's when you know I'm lying. <laughs> I'm pretty much I'm really. High. I'm pretty much taking it every day. Uh, you know, there's uh, an article. There's an old article that a uh, long time ago that, that somebody in the Reason Universe pointed me to. I'm a New Yorker about this uh, vogue for kind of, um, you know, what do you call them? What's the class of drugs that Adderall uh, resides in? I mean, they're amphetamines, amphetamines. basically. They are but amphetamines. there's, uh, you smart know, drugs. Smart drugs. I think yeah, that was that um, was the phrase for a while. Human, and there was human enhancement. Human enhancement Magic. and all this stuff. So the 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 um, New Yorker wrote this piece about it, and I'm expecting to be like, you know, here is what people say that they do. Here, you know, then you you have the point in a piece like that where it's always about the kids. 
The young kids are all going nuts with this stuff. And then you have the grim, sort of wrinkly-faced, pug-faced doctor who comes in and says, you know, this is all very bad. The New Yorker's piece actually didn't do that. It was a piece about Adderall. It's like, you know, it kind of works. It's uh, pr- pretty good if you're trying to be productive. And um, here's the thing. Here's a little secret. Um, I'm going to give away a little bit of news here. Right. Um, no, one has, no one has ever said this on the radio. Um, that This is something that all journalists um, – uh, take part in, by the way, a lot of journalists uh, never, never mentioned because journalists would have to write about themselves in that way rather than the laudatory ways that they typically write about themselves. So much so that uh, it was told to me by somebody who was an associate of this person that even at the end of his life, William F. Buckley uh, was taking a uh, similar type uh, thing. Uh, Called to- cocaine? No, 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 no. To, like a like an Adderall, different, different Ritalin, uh, uh, that type of thing. Uh, Vivance. There's a whole category of these things, mm-hmm. and it's a kind of a an open secret uh, amongst journalists because, especially younger journalists, everyone in colleges these days, it's it's like. You can't find a kid who doesn't take this stuff at college. That's these true. Days. Sure. And I've asked people, and I work with a lot of young I people. Think, I think I'm just on the other uh, end of the age limit here, yeah. right? Because I'm 48 now. It's just old. I mean, I'm halfway Jesus done. Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, well, you look. You do look good, though. I thank you. I've, I've been, yeah. um, you I've, don't look that old. Um, trying. It's not that old. But like, uh, it's kind of old. Everyone <laughs> younger than me. Who works in journalism is on is on the Adderall. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. the only people older than me who are on the Adderall are like you know Nick Gillespie. I, I bet there's a lot of signaling going on there. There's <laughs> a lot of people saying that so they're much, taking so it. So much so much revelation not. in this episode. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot. There's of a, a novelist. I've talked to a number of people that they just they really. It's like it is the journalist equivalent of juicing. You know, it is it is <laughs> this is our own Jose Canseco, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa scandal. Is that? But it's not really a scandal. Did any of the the plagiarists that you have uncovered? Over the years, did any of them use the "it was the Adderall" excuse? You know, it's that's really an interesting question. Huh. I can't answer that because I don't know off the top of my head if anyone has used. I mean, people have used the "it's drugs" excuse. Um, what's his name from the New York Times? Uh, uh, burning down my master's house. Uh, yeah, Jason. Uh, um, Jason Blair mm-hmm. uh, said it was the cocaine. Uh, that he had was was uh, said he was. So uh, you were not involved in the Blair. No, 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 no. Okay. I'm just saying of these people in say. general okay. that uh, uh, plagiarists, frauds, phonies. Uh, the, the substance abuse excuse has come up a few times. I mean, Blair was supposedly reporting on uh, John Lee Malvo, the uh, DC yeah, sniper, yeah. and he was describing was the, the younger, this, the younger of the two. The uh, yeah, yeah, Jamaican John Allen Muhammad was the other one, yeah. right? And he was describing the sort of bucolic scene. Uh, in which uh, Malvo was, you know, living, growing up, et cetera. And he later acknowledged that he did this, uh, wrote this uh, bucolic scene with a face full of cocaine in his apartment in Brooklyn, <laughs> which, you know, is, you know, admittedly easier to do yeah. than traveling to Virginia. Um, it's more fun. You know, you can take a break and play some Xbox and do some more coke. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that excuse, I, I, not in the cases that I've done. I mean, usually uh, the excuses that, I, that I've gotten – range but but my my favorite one my favorite uh, uh, response was a was a guy um, that I wrote about in the Wall Street Journal a very famous uh, British uh, historian named Dominic Sandbrook has a new documentary where he hosts uh, on I think right now on BBC and there's no, been no punishment for for his his uh, transgressions but when he was caught um, nothing happened. Only one magazine in the UK wrote about it, Private Eye. Fantastic, funny Private Eye. But it came up again when I did the Journal Era story. So he was asked about it by the Telegraph, and he said, no, no, no. It's clearly not true because my publisher uh, – it was a hardcover that I reviewed. My publisher put the book out again in paperback. 
So obviously they had full confidence in it and they, they thought these charges were spurious and, and false. Anyone with half a brain knows that a publisher is not, is no, has no interest in pulping books and not going through it. If they're going to get away with it, they'll get away with yeah. it. But, uh, but the abuse excuse is, is uh, Yohan Hari. Yohan Hari, actually. I think uh, he made the abuse he, excuse. He yeah. had the abuse excuse and then Wrote used a book about that the drug war. <laughs> about the drug war. Uh, Re- recently. Would yeah, love, yeah. I know, I know a lot and of he, people. And he gave a TED Talk, which has uh, been viewed by a lot of people. It's actually pretty good. I've heard people from our universe, like, this Yohan Hari book is great. And I'm like, you know what? You just He uh, lied uh, to me. Yeah. Uh, personally, and, yeah. and like I mean, I I was responsible for having a piece of his published in the L.A. Times, which is almost certainly fraudulent, with like a novelistic detail about you know a poor woman in Afghanistan trying to sell her opium poppy to mark marketers. Yeah. I was just lie. Yeah, uh, as far as I can tell, I mean, there's no evidence that it, that it happened, and I feel like this uh, horrendous sense of shame. And it's like if just because he's on your side on, on sure. the subject, we're gonna. Like, well, that's what always happens. I mean, he I puts had all a, the footnotes. Oh, he's got so yeah, he's got footnotes. I mean, and Coulter has a lot of footnotes too. I I actually had an email exchange with him in probably two thousand three or two thousand two or three. I emailed him. He wrote a piece in which he claimed that he went to the Finsbury Park Mosque, which was the radical mosque in in Finsbury in uh, Finsbury Park in London, uh, run by uh, uh, Abu. What's his name? The guy with the hook hand and the in the patch in his eye. Fantastic, Dustin Hoffman. Fantastic, evil character. <laughs> yeah, uh, and his uh, his guy right next to him was Robin Williams. Uh, the, he was he was the other imam, but he was a fantastically evil guy, perfectly cast. And he, uh, Hari said he infiltrated this mosque, went there. Hari's um, a gay man, and Ooh, said that he chubby fella. He's a little chubby uh, gay man. He said he had sex with a guy. Uh, that was that went to Finsbury Park Mosque, and then the other part of this, because you know, to, you have to really Stephen class it. You can't really just say that's enough. And then he said, and I also went to a Holocaust denial conference in L.A. and I had sex with one of the guys there too. <laughs> so all these extremists are also gay men. I don't know what the purpose of the piece was, but I sent him an email and I was like, is that really true? And he wrote back, yep, absolutely true. Yeah. But the thing about it is, and then final, final kind of cap on this to make it sort of relevant to today is, I think that people would probably have a little more faith in the media and in journalism in general, if we actually punish these people. The number of people that... I cannot for the life of me, and people ask me this question all the time, why are some people run out of life, run out of, you know, journalism and others aren't? Why is Mike Barnacle on MSNBC where Stephen Glass... The famous fabulous, you know, and fraud from the New Republic. A fantastic film was made about him, by the way. It really is really a great, great. really great, great film called Broken Glass with Hayden Christensen. Um, why is he not only not allowed back in journalism, he he has been trying to become a lawyer in the state of California. And, yeah, that's right. and they have denied him every year. And last year it happened again on the bar exam. And they said, you, to be, and I think I've mentioned this on the show before, to be a lawyer in the state of California, the lowest form of pond scum. Now watch it. I mean, look, this is not like, you know, this is not becoming the, the, you know, the sort of cardinal of Vienna or something. This is a lawyer, and they will not let him through. They get some sort of moral clause, moral issue. um, So why? Why him and and why others get away with it? uh, um, uh, When Hari's book came out, it's like a year, year and a half ago. We're talking about Chasing chasing the Scream now. Yeah, Chasing the Scream. Which I have read, and I do think is quite good. 
Yeah, I uh, I can't uh, I endorse your endorsement. Um, I understand. I, I just I said went, the book is good. I'm I saying went he's a good guy. And, uh, and <laughs> saw the way that it was written about, uh, excerpted in some cases. I believe it was Mother Jones uh, excerpted it or Politico or some, you know, uh, uh, respected uh, organ out there. And the way that it was reviewed and only... Well, I would say less than ten percent of the uh, of the respected news media organs out there who either excerpted it, reviewed it, or pro- profiled them in any way even mentioned that here is a guy yeah. whose sins were so grave that he was defrocked from receiving the Orwell Prize. Mm. Um, uh, you know, who was an absolute laughing stock uh, in British media, and you got to you got <laughs> you got to go the extra mile to be like drummed out of Fleet Street, and he totally was. Um, and they didn't even mention it. I mean, so it's uh, and it took him a while too because. He was caught making stuff up in an Iraq story in 2003, 2004. He was in Iraq before the Iraq War. He's an early Iraq War supporter. Yeah. He once invited me. I was in London with him, and he invited me to go out in front of Parliament and mock uh, anti-war protesters with him to go to go and yell at them. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm and good. he was one I'm of the good. ones that turned so ruthlessly to the other side yes. in a kind of Andrew Sullivan way that rather than you know just sort of copping to their mistake and saying I regret it and I, I you know here's why they he went to the mocking to 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 the people that were once his his comrades and ruthlessly <laughs> mocking uh, a lot of people didn't forgive that and that's the weird thing about Hari but why Yohan Hari is allowed to look I I think it was Joe Nocera from the New York Times wrote, called me one time when I was at the Newsweek and he was doing a piece on on frauds and I think he was doing maybe one on Lair and he 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 talked about Stephen Glass and I actually believe that Stephen Glass has paid his debt and Stephen Glass should be allowed a second chance. Not it's not even in journalism. He should be allowed a second chance in life. I mean, he'd been kept from being a, a lawyer. The guy was 23, 24, 25, way out ahead of himself, you know, really, really, you know, drunk with this idea of being a powerful journalist. And he screwed up and he screwed up bad. But w- what is the point at which we stop kicking these people and say, like, OK, you get a second chance because, you know, do, do these people that, that, you know, uh, John Ronson writes about in, in his book, say, been publicly shamed. Does the sense of shame, should it carry around with them forever? Because it's so easy now to be shamed. Like it's so much easier to, I mean, you know, the woman from IAC who had that, wrote that tweet, um, about Africa when she was going to Africa, yeah. Justine Sacco, yeah. Justine Sacco. Um, that case is an amazing one. And John writes about it brilliantly. Who says, you know, she made the uh, the joke about um, getting AIDS. Because yeah, she was a white woman. But it I'm was a white it, woman. I'm headed to Africa. I hope yeah, I don't but, get AIDS. But it was a social justice joke, uh, and ma- people yeah. didn't get it. That's Imagine right. if Michael Moynihan was publicly shamed for every off color oh AIDS God. joke that he made. <laughs> oh my God! I mean, well, he doesn't ever make them. You can just make them about He doesn't make them about Africa, though. You don't make them about Africa. You you stay you stay behind the line. But the thing about Sacco is that she makes this joke, and she's doing it in like a social justice way. Like the the joke, by the way, if you. Didn't, people out there don't know it is that I'm going to Africa. Hope I don't don't get AIDS. Just kidding. I'm white, and she was making a joke. <laughs> that that was so funny. Better, still funny. Uh, it was making, she's making a joke yeah. about how like the AIDS rates amongst white people in South Africa, where her family is from, are basically zero compared to compared to black Africans. But nobody stopped long enough to even care about that. They just wanted to hang somebody, despite the fact that nobody had ever heard of her. Mm-hmm. She had a thousand people, maybe even less than a thousand followers on Twitter. But like, do now that we have these means of being shamed, you know, you would have made that joke to your friends maybe fifteen years ago, or like, you would have. Uh, I no, I would never do something like that. And. <laughs> And then, you know, and that would be it. But now we have the means of of being shamed that the amount of people 
that are going to be run out of public life is going to be so much greater these days. It is so much greater that, I mean, there's well, a point where we I just have to stop doing this. The difference, though, is not so much that there wasn't a means of being shamed because if you were the, the town whore, right, yeah. some, sometime before Twitter, any time before Twitter, it's a pretty much all one epoch. <laughs> um, but if you were the town whore, everyone knew. Yeah. And you could not escape your reputation. You w- might perhaps be forced to wear a scarlet letter because that's what we did with people before Twitter. You wear the scarlet letter. Um, but I like you could Camille probably history. you could probably you like that. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> it, and it's kind of true. In a way, it's true. Look it's out. Not, this isn't in. fake news. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but you could at least go like three towns away. Exactly. Um, and you yeah. cannot escape it now. So no. in this case, absolutely, trying to make a life for yourself without changing your name and your physical appearance uh, might might be a hell of a lot more difficult. Um, but but it is um, it is interesting. Um, I, I want to see Camille's transition. Yeah, right this is going to be good. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is it is interesting to talk about sort of. Um, I guess this isn't really double standards. I don't know. I ain't got a good transition. There's stuff happening in the news. Today yeah. is Electoral College Day, <laughs> sure. damn it. The Electoral College Shame members are casting their ah, ballots today. The the big the big question um, that is lingering at the moment, because we are recording this at a time when we have no idea what the outcome is going is, uh, whether or not these votes are happening safely, whether or not a civil war has broken out outside of the room. Um, but we do know that a lot of emotional appeals have come from people who I kind of sort of resemble from various movies and television shows asking members of the Electoral College to do the right thing, to to take their constitutional responsibility seriously because Donald Trump is dangerous and he is unfit to hold the office and they can't possibly cast their ballots in that way. I, I wonder, gentlemen, if either of you expect any surprises um, from this situation. I know that I, I really don't. No. Um, I suspect that the Electoral College members will probably mostly cast their ballots in the right way. Matt, you had an, an interesting uh, assertion earlier as to what surprises might actually be in store. My dice roll here, and, uh, and this is Jack Astry on the morning of, is that there will be more faithless electors who go away from Hillary Clinton than there will be of, from Donald Trump. Oof. Um, the first one we've got one so far that's confirmed as uh, as as of press time, uh, and that's someone who went away from Hillary Clinton to uh, Bernie Sanders. Um, I, so I think we'll we'll see we're going to see no matter what I think more faithless electors than we have seen in uh, it, it could set a modern record for that. I still think it's going to be you know five in this direction, four in that direction. Yeah, um, so. they need thirty five, thirty four. Yeah, 34, and they would all like they would yeah. all need to engage in the yeah. same behavior, uh, yeah. which is not likely to happen. Or I mean, they don't even need to select Clinton though. If if they get the thirty four, it goes to Congress. Yeah, which is which is really what they could select saying. John Kasich or whoever. Yeah. But I mean, the thing is, I think that I mean, we know of one person who's publicly been been kicking up a storm about this. One Republican guy, but you know, it, it's. It strikes me that this is like most media non-stories. It r- reminds me of when I was on the floor at the RNC and everyone was following these these rebellious delegations. And I did a, a couple of pieces on this. And there were interesting people. And the backroom dealings that I got to be a part of and watch were really interesting, too. But there was a point in it that I realized that this was just a pipe dream. And there was so much in the media that that people talking about this on cable news and people talking about this in the New York Times, et cetera, and Politico, that it was kind of aspirational. They were hoping that this would happen. And this yeah. is this is sort of the same way with the faithless elector. I mean, there's no evidence of this, that this is going to happen. Tomorrow will be a new day. And beyond the fact that I loathe Donald Trump and I don't want him to be the president of the United States of America, that, I mean, you want to talk about inciting a civil war? Who are these people? 
Yeah. Who are these people that are going to going to choose somebody? Well, I don't know who they are. We know, Why am I trusting these people? We know that they are now the um the most respected institution in America, according, <laughs> according to Keith Olbermann and Martin Sheen. Yeah. They've Amazing. always yeah. been electoral college fans. You, Keith, sir. Does he, is he still saying sir all the time? Keith Olbermann. Oh, my he's, garden. He's yeah. fucking nuts. This yeah. is, uh, I, I mean, nuts. we always knew that he was strange, um, colorful, interesting in his way, but, you know, the, uh, uh, had some screws loose. But the man is now leading the resistance. He's in the hills of the Sierra Madre yeah. with, yeah. like, him pictures yeah. of himself wearing a beard, uh, and say he, he calls a Trump Sierra a Russian. Mestra, by the way, the Sierra Madre was a was a oh, yeah, uh, was a uh, Humphrey Bogart movie. Uh, <laughs> but that's a, fine. It, he it, might be there too. It's a town above uh, above uh, Pasadena. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's as far as he's going to go. <laughs> you think he's going to go to a real fucking foothill yeah. here? Uh, Excuse me, sir. <laughs> I am above 125th Street, sir. And he's calling Trump sir. a Russian whore every oh single day. Uh, John McCain today, uh, Jacob Solon had a good uh, piece uh-huh. on reason, but John McCain he's over, mentally unstable, o- over the weekend has said- Which, which one, Jacob Solom or John Jacob McCain? No, Jacob's out of his, out of his mind. He has no idea what's going Complete. on. Oh, oh, there was a coincidence. Uh, both of them are, but keep going. <laughs> I was talking about Keith Olbermann. <laughs> okay, uh, so all three. Okay. Uh, no, but McCain uh, said this formulation, and uh, a, a, a lot of people, I'm sure a lot of friends are saying the same thing. Um, about how Russia hacked the election. And, and, yeah. and uh, McCain's like, is a, uh, they hacked our democracy this year. And Solom just very uh, clinically pointed out, like, what the hell are you talking about? Imagine that if we would have somehow gotten a hold of Donald Trump's tax returns, mm-hmm. right? Hmm. And we got that through a leak. And let's hmm. say we had reason to suspect that that leak originated from Germany. This was mm-hmm. Jacob's thing. Um, we would publish it because it's newsworthy information. People mm-hmm. want to know this. We should have known this, and it's a shame that we didn't know this. But we would publish it, and would we talk about if that had happened that our election got hacked, that our democracy was hacked somehow by a foreign power? Fuck no, we wouldn't. We wouldn't even begin to think about it in those terms. So again, it's even with annoying. the same throat clearing that Michael did that made Camila go and spit on his hands and yeah, yeah, and yeah. laugh over there, I, <laughs> yeah, I agree yeah. with it, but I won't reiterate it. Um, it's it. Uh, people are getting so far out, and it's this. You're right, Michael. And there was the moment you and I participated. I think it was me, you, and Megan McCardle were over <laughs> on the floor of the RNC, and we were sitting there, uh, probably looking for uh, you know a, at the Virginia delegation. At the Virginia delegation, yeah, this right. was it. The Virginia delegation mm. all of a sudden went away. Yeah, and we're like, that's it. That's it. It's the walkout. It's happening. It's on. They all had to piss. They all went. They all went. They all went to get lunch, and then, yeah, and then yeah, they yeah. came back. back. But there was like, you know, we took pictures of it, and then people were just like furiously, like, "This is it. The yeah. walkout is happening," and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Turns out, the walkouts that were much more uh, prevalent, interesting, and numerous happened at the Democratic convention, and not the Republican one. But there was this this need, this psychological need, um, that for a while was played by David freaking French uh, mm-hmm. of, uh, of National Review of, of this idea that there's going to be That's some... President French, too. <laughs> some say Evan McMullen is now doing this. Uh, I mean, increasingly shrilly um, uh, out there saying that, you know, Donald Trump is uh, disloyal to America and, and you know, the shrinking uh, uh, number of people who are uh, following this, especially on the Republican conservative side, because I think an underappreciated thing what Donald Trump has done since the election is that he has been very skillfully through his appointment process and deliberation process and filling out the cabinet. He's been co-opting all of planet conservatism. He, yeah. he is, is 
uh, at least according to the way that he's filling out his cabinet, there's a lot of conservative wish fulfillment that is taking place. He's nominating people who are going to do things that Republicans haven't attempted to do in generations, he's, certainly not under George W. Bush. And when you do that, there's going to be a lot of people saying, oh, let's go do this stuff instead of listening to what Evan yeah. McMullen is tweeting in, about. In addition to the nominations, though, he's also having meetings with people who we know, like having conversations about who the hell to nominate for the Supreme Court, like one Judge Knapp, which blew my friggin' mind last week. They had a meeting? Yes. Had a meeting. Trump how, do you know, how do you know that? It was in, it was in the papers. I was talking about it. I thought you were. I, thought, yeah. I was going to say, don't bury the lead. Put this up front. If it's yeah, yeah, news. No. But it's no, not they, news. They had a conversation. Really? And he talked to, um, he talked to our friend, um, British accent, Fox Business. Stuart, Stuart Varney? Varney. Stuart Varney. There it oh, is. God. Yeah, I had a conversation oh, with Stuart Barney that's about little, it. That's a little disconcerting. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I got to tell you, the, green, on, on the green room of Fox these days is like just this weird place. I was well, over there with Bolton uh, the other day on, on Kennedy's show, and like Monica Crowley comes over in there and is like, hey, do you got any news? Oh, yeah. Well, but it's, I mean, that's where he's uh, pulling all these people from. I mean, it, the, the idea that press secretary might be, um, what's that dingbat's name from the five? Guilfoyle. Oh, God, she's horrible. Um, Ex-Mrs. Yeah. Gavin Newsom. Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows yeah um or you know or which party to blow the the thing is is that with with wait was that sexual no (laughs) (laughs) definitely not definitely not absolutely not took you a second but it's definitely not um dirty. i didn't want to call attention to it but now that we have um, but back to the, back to the Russian thing. You're ab- you're absolutely right, and and it's it's frustrating to see these people to everybody conflate these issues. And it's like I get the we want to delegitimize Donald Trump by saying uh-huh. that he's part of a, a, a Russian conspiracy, etc. Um, what's well, frustrating about this is that if people had any idea and a sense of of history, the kind of media core these days and the people that are shrieking about this most, I see this on on, on Twitter and on all these dumb websites that people read, including the one that I used to work for, which is getting increasingly stupid, um, and, and you know, heaving and sweating and saying, I can't believe what's going on. If these people weren't 23-year-olds who just got off duty at the you know, Stanford newspaper talking about whiteness and things like that, they would understand that uh, the America-Russia relationship has had this exact same dynamic since you know 1917. We could probably go back even further than that. There's a, two fantastic books by Christopher Andrew, who uh, and a guy named Vasily Matrokin. Vasily Matrokin was a was a, a guy that works inside the KGB apparatus, and he copied by hand, by hand, piles and piles and piles and piles of KGB documents, and 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 sort of spirited them out in the mid nineteen nineties. Christopher Andrews is a historian at Cambridge University. Put them together, and put them together, and they ultimately became two very fat no- volumes, which are the most fascinating, almost Rosetta Stones of the media relationship between you know the Soviet Union and America during the Cold War, and that includes how they planted stories in, for instance. The Guardian. The Guardian was a great source of them. They would go and they would fake documents and they would get them to friendly journalists at The Guardian who were more pro-Soviet. And then, you know, Ronald Reagan and uh, South Africa. There's a bunch of stuff, South Africa stories, that they would drop in. If there were possibilities, they would do the sort of honey traps with people, take photographs of them, having sex, etc. If there were the capability of getting those documents in the way that we could get them today, just by sitting at your computer in some sort of grim business park outside of Moscow, they would do the same thing. It's the exact same thing. These things happened during elections. During, I mean, I remember in 1980, 
They were trying to, they wanted Ted Kennedy over, you know, anybody else, over Jimmy Carter, over Ronald Reagan. The interference is there. It's it's different it, when we do it. it well, look, and, and that's the other and, thing. And is the I, circumstances were different. And well. look at Ariel Dorfman. I wanted to disagree with this because, I mean, I think Ariel Dorfman's a great writer. Chilean writer wrote a thing the other day saying, hey, you know how it feels. You screwed with us in 1973. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I mean, you know, Janet Jackson said, what have you done for me lately? I mean, that was 40 odd years ago. <laughs> but I get it. I get what you're saying. And we're not innocent in this. Uh, either. And this is what foreign powers do. We should prevent it. We should be very, very vigilant about stopping it. But the idea that this is something that changed the election, we have no evidence of this. Zero. We yeah. need evidence yeah. of these things. We're, ta- we're in this era where we're slobbering about fake news all the time. All the time. It's fake news this, fake news that, fake news this, which, by the way, has expanded definitionally to anything we disagree with. Yes. It's, I- the, it's the version of fascism. It's you're something I disagree with. Fake news, yet we are saying that, that, that the Russians are responsible for Donald Trump being elected president. It is actually more complicated than that, and primarily because well, his opponent sucked as a candidate. And, and I don't need to pivot here because we're, we've already arrived at this place, which makes a hell of a lot of sense since a lot of the Electoral College complaint has seemingly ended up at a place where they're saying, look, there are all these questions about the election. Can't we at least wait until after we've investigated this thing fully because the Russians totally gave the election to Donald Trump? Um, it seems to me that there is a lot of confusion about the, uh, the email scandal. Um, and part of the issue here is that the Hillary Clinton actually had two separate email scandals, which have now become one amorphous blob, all of which seem to be the responsibility of the Russians, all of which we are no longer even having conversations about whether or not these things are true. Um, the first, of course, is Hillary Clinton had an email server that she set up, a private email server that she set up while she was secretary of state. She was processing confidential emails through this email server. This is almost certainly under any other circumstance, if it were pretty much anyone of a lo- much lower profile of her or, say, some other high ranking official inside of the federal bureaucracy, you might go to jail for doing this kind of thing. People are being thing. prosecuted for similar um, things, right? Absolutely. Now. Yeah. So that is the first scandal. That scandal exists, it has been investigated. We had two, uh, two instances where a high ranking government official, someone from the intelligence, uh, it, uh, infrastructure agency was it comey who went sorry was comey yeah yeah sorry comey shows up twice to testify um in congress and talk about this case um the second time was actually pretty close to the election there are questions about whether or not that influenced voters i don't know nobody does there isn't a hell of a lot of evidence that it did but perhaps it did but the second thing is something else and that is the actual hacks of dnc of the dnc of computers within the dnc which gave hackers access to emails these hacks took place over the course of maybe two years we think uh, according to some of the reports that we've seen um and ultimately started with a phishing uh, a phishing scam mm-hmm. which if you are at all familiar with this i mean is pretty much someone sends you a link in your email you click that link it takes you to a site that looks like a site you think uh, is something you trust. You put in confidential information like your password. They gain access to your system and they own you or you install some sort of malicious software. Um, what we know about that phishing scam is that someone who was involved probably speaks Russian. Um, that is what we sort of knew early on. Um, and that was about the extent of it. Um, what we know now, as of about two Fridays ago, is that the president came out and said we were going to investigate this thoroughly. There had always been, already been a lot of rumbling that the Russians might have been involved. And then we had a leak come through 
uh, I guess, the, the various intelligence organizations through the, the newspapers. It was the CIA. CIA. A leak not that the, the various, CIA. The you're CIA. right. A leak that the CIA had actually investigated this. And not only were the Russians involved at the very highest levels, um, but in addition to that, the Russians had done this for a very specific purpose in order to affect the outcome of the election for Donald Trump's benefit. Granted, all of, at, at this point in time, the emails have already been published. They have been published in various newspapers all over the place. Um, and there are sort of several questions. Were the emails true? Was the content of the emails true? Did the, influence, did the emails actually influence the outcome of the election? Um, did the Russians at the very highest levels actually do this? Do we know? Is there, is there sufficient evidence? And then the final question is, did the Trump administration have anything to do with it? Were they at all aware um, of any of these things, maybe a moot point um, once we get through the first couple of things. Um, but it seems to me uh, after that very long setup, and you'll have to let us know if that kind of stuff is useful at all to you. <laughs> um, but it seems to me that we don't really have sufficient information, at least publicly available to us to know um, whether or not the motivation was to, in fact, affect the outcome of the election. And we certainly don't have enough information, so far as I can tell, to know, publicly available again, um, whether or not uh, someone inside of the Kremlin said, go do this thing immediately. It is certainly the case that a phishing scam is the sort of thing that a technically competent hacker could pull off, um, even one who speaks Russian as a first language, and they wouldn't necessarily need the entire backing of the, the Russian intelligence yeah, um, infrastructure I, behind them. And, and at a minimum, like it seems important that we investigate this sort of thing fully. And if there is clear, concrete evidence that the Russians were involved in this at the highest levels, then the administration, it seems to me, has a responsibility to come forward and put that information out on the table yeah, so that we yeah. can all know. But let's Sorry about that. Um, don't apologize at all. I, I mean, I think... I don't understand why anyone would doubt for a moment that Vladimir Putin wouldn't want Donald Trump to win and wouldn't move whatever he could to make that happen. It, that's just... and, and note whose emails were hacked. Yeah. I mean, there were, Demo- there were Democrats who were hacked. That's yeah. it. Um, um, I <laughs> kind pre- of a giveaway. We, do- we don't have the evidence yet. We might get it later that, uh, that there was knowledge from his par- uh, uh, part around, around his circles that went through someone um, – to make that happen. But what's the the end of all of that? Let's even assume, okay? I assume and I think it's true that Putin wanted Trump to win and would do what he could within reason to make that happen. Okay. Um much like we want a lot of different people to win and lose elections abroad in, in other countries uh too, maybe with less uh, action and uh it depends. But all of this leads to John Podesta's emails get published. Yeah, that's so. Uh, it leads to us knowing more stuff about how things happen in can, the by world. The way, can it we stop? Can, can we also place. stop referring to Think Progress uh, and the Center for American Progress as a think tank when the Russian <laughs> government knows that if it wants the Democrat to lose, it hacks a think tank, an independent think tank, to get their emails because they're the puppeteers on this? But look, I mean, the the thing about the Washington Post story, the New York Times story about this, there's no doubt that this was the Russians. I, I don't think that, I mean, let's say with 90% certainty, 95% certainty, I mean, this shouldn't surprise anyone. There's, I mean, the qui bono here is really obvious. Yeah. It's a, he obviously wants um, uh, Donald Trump to rim for, for obvious reasons and is targeting very specific people. Why, how do we know and how are these leaks uh, coming from that that there was actually top-level knowledge about this and top-level guidance, uh, meaning particularly from the Kremlin? Look, nothing 
you know, it used to be like, it reminds me in, in 2001, 2002 that, you know, Iraq, we talk about Iraq and say Iraq never supported terrorism, et cetera. Well, no, not in the way that, that, that a lot of people claimed. But, you know, Abu Nidal was living in Baghdad and nobody got into Baghdad and set up residence especially if you're Abu Nidal, without the approval of the regime. The same thing is true in Russia. You do not undertake a massive hacking um, sort of expedition like this. And then the unique thing that's different about this in the past is releasing everything, not a selective kind of thing to journalists, releasing to the public the entire archive of emails. That's unique. Nothing happens in Russia like this without the Kremlin knowing. But what everyone's talking about here is like, well, we're looking at metadata. We're trying, we see a few things that, that um, you know, maybe have Cyrillic characters. There might be an ISO thing in here, blah, 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 in all this sort of nerdy stuff. Right? Mm-hmm. And people say, well, you can't really know. Everyone is missing the huge, obvious point here. The, the way that, and it's not mentioned in the, in, the, in the Post article, the Times article, for obvious reasons, they keep these things protected. But what is obvious about this is we have human intelligence that is telling that the, us that this is a Kremlin operation. That, that seems to be the case. That we, is, that we, is absolutely, has I, to I mean, be the case. I, I suspect, I, I would agree, to the extent that the intelligence community is going to be extremely concrete about this and, yeah. say, de, and say definitively that the Russians are behind this, then they they. I suspect that they have something, some sort of captured transmission of someone back in Moscow saying, hey, uh, how's that thing going with the uh, DNC emails? Great. Awesome. I mean, Victor- I hope Victor- Trump wins. Yeah. The- Maybe Victorian, that correspondence exists. My, my they're my, not going to make it public, but I mean, remember Victoria Newland, who is the the American ambassador to Ukraine, uh-huh. was captured on the phone by Russian intelligence. This is how sophisticated the Russians are, and that we were. She was talking to somebody. I can't remember what about the United States involvement in supporting those who were opposing uh, Viktor Yanukovych, and that call was made public. Yeah, that an audio of the call. Where do we think that came from? They have those capabilities. We have those capabilities. Right. The idea that we don't know and we're just looking at metadata and that's it is every kind of every aspect of every article I read is that I'm not saying about you, but everything I read is like, well, you can't tell from this. They could hide it through Tor and they could hide it through, you know, 35,000, you know, overlapping VPNs. It's like, no, there's actual traditional intelligence being being done here, too. So so stepping away from (laughs) sort of Donald Trump's um, original position, which is it could be anybody. We have no idea. Nobody knows anything. Thing. It's um, true, but... which he seems to be backing away from that a bit. Yeah. If, you, if you are to trust uh, rinse, rinsing Priebus, um, <laughs> but but it does it, from this weekend, uh, rinse seems to back away from it, and at least suggested that the president-elect would maybe reconsider his position if, in fact, the CIA um, and the FBI got together and conducted an investigation and but, but the, published a, a, some sort of report. a quick interjection. I don't want to. I don't want you to lose your point. But no, a quick interjection it. here is that this is Donald Trump realizing what governing is all about, and you know not governing by tweet and governing from his spleen and just like, you know, going out there and yelling because someone told him, you know, these intelligence agencies are actually quite important to us. And please, please do not have an adversarial relationship with them and say they're making all of this up and they're wrong and start hitting them about Iraq intelligence. And this Probably. is why he's backing away. Well, 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 uh, at the same time, he's he's a uh, he's coming in as a change agent. He has a lot of people <laughs> around him who who uh, for them draining the swamp is going after what they consider to be the deep state yeah. of uh, of entrenched bureaucracies and that includes the intelligence agencies and it, those intelligence agencies have been operating without a hell of a lot of uh, of oversight or any kind of restraint out there um and you can see what the CIA is doing 
at the front of this, they wanted to queer the the 17 agency result in their interpretation at the beginning of it all. Right. So that, well, this is what CIA kind of does and uh-huh. what, what other intelligence agencies do. So I wouldn't necessarily uh, say, uh, Michael, that uh, that – that you know he's going to, they're going to have a cozy relationship. I think he's going to go in oh, there. No, I think that's right. There yeah. is going to be some adversary. But I think there is somebody saying that like let's back away from this and not be so out, I mean, outwardly hostile to these agencies and their conclusions and bringing up the mistakes of WMD in Iraq because we we really just don't want to have this kind of adversarial relationship before we're even in the White House. And, th- and that's part of the, a part of it. And that's part of the narrative to be sure. I mean, I, I think another part of the narrative though is the official response from Washington. And right now, it's the Obama administration that is at the helm. Um, and the the clear question oh, yeah. here is what do you <laughs> what do you do about this? Um, and what the president has articulated is that they are going to do some things back to Russia. We imagine that they are also cyber, although he hasn't been very specific. Some of those things you will know about and they'll be public. You're going to disrupt elections and then tell everyone about it. Or and some of those things you won't know about. What on earth are you talking about? Yeah, what, I don't. What, what is that and what does that mean? And Joe and the Biden fact, did that like a month ago, he, too. He, he, had, he had previously made he those. Did. He had previously said those things. And I thought to myself, oh, there goes Joe again. Um, but then when the president doubles down on it and says so publicly, look, this is this is this is why it becomes very important that we have some sense of what kind of intelligence they have, because the response from the from the White House is that this is pretty much an act of war. I mean, this is this is serious shit. Um, and to the extent our response is, OK, well, now we are going to have actual clear in your face provocations on our parts as well um, for all of the concern. Um, about what Donald Trump might do with China. And this is this is interesting because the the Obama administration has sort of taken the opposite approach here, Uh, a more sort of forceful hand with the Russians and a more delicate hand with the Chinese, even um, when we're having as of as right now with this uh, drone uh, that's been captured. Um, Even right now, the, the Obama administration is much quieter about that while very, they're very bellicose about the response to the Russians. And we don't have clear, a clear sense of what sort of intelligence they have. And I think for that reason, if the bar is going to be now we are going to engage them militarily for all intents and purposes, it involves computers and not bombs, but that's for now. Um, it, it seems appropriate that the, that the administration be very, very clear. I mean, isn't that um, bellicosity, sort of though? I mean, you're right about, I mean, the Chinese uh, snatch a underwater drone, but it's like, bye, see you, we're taking this. But, I mean, isn't that bellicosity just a response to a kind of media narrative that, oh, you're going soft on Russia because, you know, for, for obvious pol- domestic political reasons. Perhaps. And I think that that's probably, but, you know, to your other point of it, that we can't be, be um, and I think you're totally right about this, we can't be sort of um, kind of more forgiving about things because they're cyber attacks and cyber responses. The first time, and I don't know how many years ago this was, three or four years ago, that there was physical damage from a cyber attack, I believe, was oil fields in Kuwait. I can't recall, but there was, and it was that was definitely the first attack. And so, basically, what had happened was a physical result of somebody screwing with things that controlled, you know, elements of the oil fields, and they blew up. And that was the first time ever that a cyber attack had actually had a physical, explosive, potentially damaging, death-inducing effect. So mm-hmm. we're actually in a point now where where cyber attacks. I mean, look at Stuxnet. Stuxnet is one of the most fascinating um, attacks 
I know, in the history of modern modern espionage, from how it got into the Iranian nuclear f- facility, which is baffling, and there's some speculation about it, and to who did it, et cetera. But this was something where these rotor boxes that control the centrifuges were sped up just a tiny bit, a tiny, tiny bit. You couldn't even notice it with the naked eye. The, the Siemens boxes were hacked into, sped up, and then all of a sudden, the entire plant was rendered you know, uh, uh, you know, inoperable. But basically, you're sending these things. You could speed those up and send them flying off and smash right. on the wall. Yeah. We are at a point where cyber attacks, was when President Obama says, we are going to hit back hard with cyber attacks. And it's like, oh, well, you know, there's some malicious code. The potential of cyber attacks actually being, having physical results is actually now being realized. And we know how to do this. We can fry electrical, electrical grids if we want, et cetera. But this is no longer just like, oh, this is the soft kind of paintball version of war. It can be very serious. One thing that Obama said uh, during this uh, press uh, conference or whatever <laughs> interview, um, and I, I agree with you, Camille, that it's that it's just it's bizarre to say we're going to hit back. Uh, we'll tell you about some of it. Some it's very Trumpian, isn't it? it, it yeah, it's, Bell- it's, uh-huh. Yelling, but just in a nice right. way. Yeah. It, it, it sounds weird. Um, uh, but one thing that he pointed out is that, hey, you know, for most of my administration, the Republicans have been mocking me for the Russian reset and for being too soft on Russia. And now, whoop, they're just completely flipping on the issue, and it's fun to watch. And he's right about that. And there was a, and 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 I, I uh, have a piece coming out uh, the next couple of days of the LA Times about kind of the uh, ideological spot changing season, you know, where everyone suddenly believes differently. Did you guys see the poll out from Economist YouGov? I think it was last week. Yeah. Um, it's a, a talk the about, Russia poll. Talk about your hockey sticks. It oh was my God, yeah. net favorability. Uh, among Democrats and Republicans towards Vladimir Putin. Yeah. That has changed since July 2016. Amazing. By 56 percentage points it's crazy. on, on the uh, Republican side. Yeah. 56 percentage points. So he went wow. from being uh, 66 underwater to, to minus 10 or minus, uh, yeah, minus 10 underwater right now. And it, and he's, uh, and he's uh, changed elsewhere. This uh, this is a great time of year when you go from one party holding the White House to the other party holding the White House. Everyone is very quickly scrambling to argue for the exact opposite of what they've uh, championed or, or fought against. Right. So we're going to hear that deficits don't matter. From yep, Republicans, yep, 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 we're exactly already right. hearing that right now. And we're, the, and, the '80s mantra. Yeah, uh, we're going to Dick hear, Cheney said it. Uh, I think he said it exactly those words. Deficits don't matter. Uh, uh-huh. uh, we're going to see. Uh, well, we are already seeing uh, headlines in the New Yorker uh, from uh, actual friend uh, Jelani Cobb, like liberals suddenly interested in states' rights. Um, Vox had a piece in uh, is as recently as February of this year with a headline something along the lines of um, states' rights is just part of the language that the right uses to cover their racism and sexism. And then this week they had one of like uh, states' rights is going to be the greatest uh, way to resist uh, Donald Trump. Yeah, sure. just it, we're constantly Mitch McConnell. Do you remember uh, his how many times have your friends brought up? My God, you know, how could Obama even govern considering that Mitch McConnell said that our number one goal is to make him a one term president? Sure. Do you know when Mitch McConnell said that just off the top of your head? Don't recall. Yeah, it wasn't in 2008 or 2009. It was like a couple of weeks before the midterms in 2010 in the context of an interview about the midterms. Uh, and also later on in the same interview, he said, but that doesn't mean we want the president to fail. This is always interpreted of Mitch McConnell wanted the president to fail. But we're already seeing the same people who have been making hay about this forever, the Steny Hoyers, the Harry Reeds and stuff. They will do anything right now. They will reach in and they will cup Keith Olbermann's balls if it means possibility <laughs> of making Trump stop, making him a one, not even a one term president. Why is it so 
bad that if a president is engaged in a series of policy prescriptions and decisions that you find loathsome and deplorable, that you want them to fail. I, I never understood why that was such a bad thing because well, it's wrapped up in the sort of sort of patriotic concept that you always must support the president. Well, it's, and it's I didn't. Funny... I didn't want these people to fail any more than you know. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think about it in that way. But if somebody does, I mean, like, yeah, so what? They want. It's, they want it's to phony. Fail. It's it's phony outrage. Uh, I mean, yeah. at, the, at the end of the day, the same people who complain about the fact that the that the Obama that the Republicans have been lined up against the Obama administration and that they've always hated him and always wanted him to fail. Um, the the they made all of those same arguments essentially against uh, George W. Bush and the and the prior administration because they imagined that those people were uniquely evil that yeah. that was the evil empire. Um, and and the other wonderful uh, sort of tweak on it once uh, they get to cri- they become the critics of rooting for the incumbent administration to fail um, is that now you get to say, well, it's racism. I mean, that is obviously what had motivated you all along um, to hate this gentleman and to want him to fail even before he got to office. No, no, it has nothing to do with the fact that he plays for the other team um, yeah. <laughs> and that and that we just ran a really nasty campaign against him or that we are getting ready to run another nasty campaign against him. And by the way, um, and the, on facts the, don't matter. And on the, on the, the thing of, wh- of whether or not these hacks had any effect on um, how Americans responded in this election. I mean, President Obama, you know, saw it in 2010, 2014, and now in 2016 of, of, of verdicts on, on his rule. So, I mean, in a weak candidate, it doesn't surprise me. But to the point that you made about the, the, the YouGov economist poll of this unbelievable swing, mm-hmm. it's the other poll that I see, the, the, the majority of people think that, that President-elect Trump won the popular vote. Right, I think it's the majority it's of Republicans. Majority of Republicans. Ma- majority of Republicans. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Majority there's, of Republicans. There's other there's other polling um, that suggests it's it's that the, the number in the monkey cage I think is who reported this uh, just a couple of days ago. Yeah. So maybe that their estimate is a little higher than some polling. Might be a little higher. And we we have this you know yeah. post nine eleven number of people that thought Saddam Hussein was involved in nine eleven etc. We give Americans an enormous amount of credit when we want to give them credit mm-hmm. when it benefits us. We want to say these emails came out. And you know everyone, all everyone in America, go to like some little whistle stop in the middle of Oklahoma or something, and there's per- people are like, "Hey, honey, did you, did you leave, read the Podesta emails today?" Like, I mean, no one's fucking doing this. I'm yeah. sorry, and I don't mean to be. It's I could do it with a Boston accent. It doesn't matter. Any, any. <laughs> go ahead. It's like. Are you are you are you, are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking serious, <laughs> sweetie? Center for Ameri- American Progress. See, she's a they liar. They got these fucking things out there. I looked in. I searched for my name. Nothing. I was on. I was on fucking WikiLeaks. I was on WikiLeaks. I looked in. They got nothing. They got a fucking thing about Noma on there. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, nobody's paying attention the way that we're paying attention. We we transpose that onto other people, and then we say, "Oh, I think that these email leaks must have said." Like you know, most people think that you know the Martians were responsible for nine eleven. I mean, you can get people to think a lot of things. Not, that's not too far from it's, the case. You know, <laughs> and this actually, this is a- so. I mean, I just think that would suggest that maybe Americans are a little more sort of malleable in their opinions. Than, they are. Than, and, and that and that uh, uh, leads to one of the um, uh, the kind of things to watch during the Trump presidency. Um, I, I wrote a piece. We probably I probably made us talk about it uh, a couple of weeks ago, but just sort of like prioritizing how to deal with, a, a you know, the median idiot Donald Trump tweet. And yeah. you start by saying, well, what can he actually do? 
Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and is there any restraints on it? And, and what can his narrow majority in Congress actually pull off? And before you know it, the tweet doesn't really matter. And you can prioritize your response accordingly. And the very bottom of all of this, uh, of at least uh, uh, my list, is like, how might the way that he talks about this issue affect American political opinion help shape it in a way that could lead to something that we don't like down the road. That is an interesting question at always and something to watch. It's also not the first thing to care about. And it's what everyone goes to first when they're freaking out and saying, I mean, I'm sure you guys have all seen the tweet of like, uh, I feel like, I mean, was it Jenny Jardin who, uh, who said this, uh, something like, I feel like we're all in a theater shouting fire and nobody's doing anything. Um, uh, and it's like, that's, I, I, I feel you, I feel you, Jenny, but like, that's not actually prioritizing a helpful response here. Uh, it is interesting to watch. How is he going to shape public opinion by the way that he talks and does things? And is that going, if, if a large number of people believe that 3 million illegal immigrants voted in this election, which they absolutely positively did fucking not, that didn't come close to happening. That would be something close to 40% of the adult illegal immigrants in this country voted. They'd have a higher voting rate than. Know, then you know, yeah. Uh, the yeah I mean, people, seriously, they had good reason to yeah, get yeah, out. Godspeed if they did. That's a serious mobilization. Uh, <laughs> no kidding. It's a but, point in their favor. Like, yeah, exactly. Give them their citizenship now. <laughs> so could that lead to bad policies down the road? Maybe, maybe not. You think about it, but that's but that's the end of the chain. What's the beginning of it is what could happen right now, and that can lead you to if you have if you're really really worried that you're going to have a, a, a creeping fascism. The way to combat it isn't to go fascism, fascism, yeah, fascism. Yeah. It's Take to it say easy, yeah, man. Well, sorry. Jeez. It's the morning, man. I mean, I know. I'm you're different. Saying, I got a different you're vibe. Going so fascism, you know. I mean, <laughs> that's. I mean, if you want to just stop uh, slapping about slapping for fascism right now, <laughs> this machine slaps fascists. Um, no, I mean, I, it, it's funny to see the the kind of deflation of people that that after the election, um, a lot of especially amongst young people, young people in the world of journalism who don't remember uh, an election that wasn't Barack Obama and barely remember his second election, right? His second, uh, you know, what, what they will, re- will remember is he was the uh, greatest president in history. I mean, obviously. Just yeah. Uh, so the 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 kind of um, you know exhale that's happening now of people that are, are, are shrieking and shouting about fascism. You know, you have people that are, that are smart people like, uh, what's, um, I think it was, uh, Michiko Kakatani, the, uh, the kind of head book critic for the, for the New York Times, by the way, who started her career, interestingly enough, writing for the American Spectator in the 1970s. Kakatani was like, you know, fun fact, um, pretty good stuff. Uh, she reviewed a new book about, um, Adolf Hitler, a uh, big fat, uh, German, uh, translated biography, which I'm actually reading right now. Um, you got to do a title or else you don't get the credit. It's actually called Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, not very inventive, those Germans. That's be, um, that, by the way, is the yeah, name of your biography. Yeah, the man, it's actually called Hitler. Yeah, it's actually, it should be called The Man with the Mustache. The Man Behind the Mustache or something. Yeah. But, but you know, her review of this was this, you know, kind of allegory about modern, um, you know, about, about Donald Trump, basically. This is a review of a book about Hitler, and it was framed as a piece about Donald Trump, basically. And I think a lot of this stuff is kind of going away. I mean, that initial, everyone's trying to get... Everyone wants to prove to their friends, their coworkers, their friends in media, that they hate him the most. And so people are vaulting over each other to say, I mean, Tucker Carlson did an interview. I saw it on um, somebody posted it on Twitter where he was talking to some woman who compared uh, Trump to Hitler. Mm. And it's really funny to watch these people that, that, that have no kind of sense of a previous American election, 2012, maybe 2008, certainly not 2004, 2000, nothing at all. And yet, and yet... They're making these these sort of long, 
extended references to the Weimar Republic, which, I mean, as far as they know, is a, a German cafe in the East Village. I mean, the, it's, it's, it's embarrassing to watch as somebody who, you know, is, care, reads about this. I was going to, in my life before I made an even worse decision, I was going to do a German, <laughs> modern German history PhD. That was my plan. And I care about this stuff. And to watch people talk about this every day and have no sense, I don't like the man. I don't. I think he's going to be bad for the country in almost every way. But good God, can we get a grip? And we have gotten a grip just because people stop caring. And if it was an emergency, if we were in a fascist moment, I would really, really, really uh, think that these people were moral cowards because you don't stop caring. You don't stop posting on Facebook about the brown shirts that are marching down the center of your, your city about to put newspapers out of business and ethnic minorities onto trains, you don't stop talking about it. That is the first evidence that this is not a fascist regime or an incoming fascist regime. Every The, the human cry about this in the first week, the first two weeks, has dissipated if not disappeared. And where are my, my friends, that are, that all of whom I, I really like, and I understand their instincts, and I understand why they hate this stuff, and I agree with them. But good God, if it's really that, you know, the dark night of fascism is upon us, you really should be, you know, not forgetting about it, right? You should not be stop tweeting about it. You should not stop posting on Facebook and going back to, like, you know, the year in review where there's, like, a record spinning and it shows you pictures of you and your dog. Good God, the fascists are here. What are you going to do about it? Well, I'm just going to get back on Facebook. I'm going to post a, a picture on Instagram. You know, I don't know. I want to do all of this, by the way, next time I do a sort of you know, untethered rant like this. I want to do it in a Boston accent. You know why? Because no. I did Dave a Boston Lee accent. Dave Lee would love it. Because uh, Dave Lee would love it. I did it in a Boston accent. Uh, and I just looked down. And what's in front of me right now? Fucking Duncan. A, dun a Duncan cup and a, and, and, a, and a Duncan bag with a half-eaten crawler in it. It's a chocolate crawler and it's half-eaten. And it's, it's fucking delicious, dude. It's amazing. I wonder, I mean, do you, do you suspect that part of the issue here is that people just sort of burned themselves out? That they were yeah, so yeah, apoplectic totally. after yeah, yeah. the election was over that at this Apoplexy point they don't have any more energy. Yeah, totally. Um, but but it, is, it is also kind of odd. And I don't know, I, we've, we've talked a lot about uh, respectability politique because it is uh, my grand theory uh, of the universe. <laughs> um, but... I wonder if people calm down, will there still be sort of sufficient scrutiny of the Trump administration? And I, I kind of already know what the answer is to this question, at least from my own perspective. Um, will there be sort of sufficient um, scrutiny of all of the various things that they do? And all indications, so far as I'm concerned, suggest that it will be. Uh, at this point, the New York Times is like very, very interested, and as 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 is every other um, mainstream media entity. Not to say that there's bias. I'm just saying that that people are focused on this. Um, that they're all <laughs> paying very close attention to the Russia situation. That that everyone cares a great deal about these questions, and that when we point to something fairly similar happening with China, like actual tensions being inflamed by. Um, actions of a malevolent government it doesn't involve uh, uh, um, it doesn't involve an election but it still like seems to matter and there isn't a lot of talk about it there isn't a lot of scrutiny of what the Obama administration is doing there it, heck even with respon even with their response to the Russians when they talk about 
these what are effectively offense, not effectively. These are offensive actions that the Obama administration is going to be taking. I suspect that there will be any number of defensive steps taken, like hardening targets and making it more difficult for the Russians to hack you or anyone else. But you have to do that anyway because of the world that we live in. Yeah. Um, the, but there, there isn't the same sort of scrutiny. I saw, I, the, I saw a short... thoughtful piece in The New York Times um, just to, to button this up. Um, that at least acknowledge that the president really doesn't have very good options when it comes to responding to cyber attacks like this. The short um, answer to a lot of of, of uh, media criticism or media coverage is that the American press doesn't cover governance. It covers politics. Mm. And so I've, I've read headlines. I'm sure you've seen them too um, that are like, you know, Donald Trump, this is what your policies are, are doing to Aleppo right now. And right. it's like, you know what? He's he's not the president. He, I swear to God he's not the president. There's someone else who is the president right now. But that president isn't being covered in the same way. And if he is, it's in a political context. Just this morning, um, there, I saw a headline about how uh, uh, Barack Obama says that uh, you know he's going to warn his uh, 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 successor not to rely over much on executive power, <laughs> uh, which is funny. Um, uh, and it's also like, oh, so now we can use the phrase executive power again because I remember that was the lead of every single best-selling offer or book uh, from 2006, 7, and 8 from your Charlie Savages of the world about the imperial presidency and and the Bush-Cheney and 9-11 and all this kind of stuff. The executive branch run amok. Worse than Watergate was John D- Dean's book, I think, uh, there. And I'm finally racking up some book points here. Um, <laughs> but uh, this was the fierce moral urgency of now uh, as of uh, the, me- the midpoint of 2007. And we've stopped hearing about nearly all of that, with some exceptions, uh, usually on the uh, on the the Bernie Sandersite uh, left, um, uh, who are all you know targets of their own uh, uh, interparty uh, jihads. Since then, uh, so yeah, we're going to see some of that again because now it becomes politics again, and because the press is weaponized and the, and their re- response to you know the legitimately weird and interesting challenge of Donald Trump and the kind of uh, Alex Jonesization of of uh, the Republican Party um, is to see themselves more as weapons in a, uh, uh, a two-sided war. And I think that's um, that's ultimately going to be a mistake. I think they're going to alienate readers even as they do uncover things that are going to be helpful and useful. But it's going to increase that sense of kind of the, the divide between cosmopolitanism and, and the countryside. And um, and now, Camille, you should make me stop talking so we can get the hell out of here. No, no, we're going to button this up now. Yeah, I got um, to run. Yeah. I gotta uh, run, any, sorry. Did any idiot write anything apart from that uh, that thing that you just referred to, Matt? Can, can I flip it and say uh, a brilliant person? Or Please. Yeah. We should have somebody. We should have him on the show. I have had him on my show on okay, uh, series. Okay, we'll do it. And I think maybe you have, too, is that there is a very, very good piece that you will really enjoy, Camille. And I cannot believe I didn't send it to you. Maybe I did. Uh, from, no, you only send me things to make me angry. I do, because I'm trying to get you to have a heart attack. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, Brendan O'Neill, who's always a fun, I mean, even when you really disagree with him, and sometimes I do with Brendan, but he's a very good writer, and he's uh, he's very funny, and he loves throwing sharp elbows. He, I think, is the number one piece, uh, most read piece now on the Spectator's website. Hmm. Uh, the Spectator is the UK website about uh, the insult of whiteness, of uh, saying uh, uh, saying dear, you know, uh, pieces that start dear white people. 
and using uh, white as a pejorative. And he has a very funny piece about it that I really liked. So we should maybe have Brendan on next time. Yeah, he's Let's a do it. libertarian Marxist, right? He's a libertarian Marxist, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. yeah he's a weirdo. That is very strange. Uh, yeah, but it's, it is a terrific ter- – I mean, you'll greatly enjoy this. I was That's good. laughing on the train. I was reading on the train up here. It's, so. like, a, it's like your Christmas gift to me. Yeah, it's my Christmas gift. Something nice, something positive. So. Never forget uh, what Jesus gave to all of you. The other thing I would like – if we're going to be nice uh, yeah. out here, uh, I want to – In the spirit of Christmas and giving. Another guy uh, who we should have on the show and uh, that we did on a serious show is uh, Jeffrey – Esoteric Jeffrey Blayhar. Blayhar, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, who uh, yeah. does Decision Desk HQ on has a great uh, Twitter feed, and he'll do these really long uh, nested threads about bands because he's a total nerd. He's a total yeah. music nerd. We yeah. uh, we uh, Moynihan and I had him on to talk about Bowie. About Bowie, yeah, uh, which yeah. was great. Yeah, Jeff's but great. he just did um, about a, a ninety-five tweet string about the early Beach Boys. Not even getting to Pet Sounds here. Oh yeah, and yeah, yeah. as Moynihan certainly knows uh, I'm, I, my my Beach Boys problem is vast and deep and rich, and I learned a ton yeah. uh, reading this, and it's just really good and, and he very is a smart lawyer, uh, music criticism. a lawyer, I believe, in Chicago, and um, I don't know where Jeff came from, but I really like him, and I really respect him. Yeah, it's good on the show. So, Say something nice about someone, Camille. Happy holidays. <laughs> so, I, don't, I, I don't know if we'll be back next week. We'll see. We're going to try to make try. it work. Do a big Moynihan is going to be running around the country. Matt is going to be somewhere in Europe. I won't tell you where because then you'd go look for him. He's a celebrity and all that stuff. Look, the music is coming in. Yeah. It's Chats. telling you to get out of here. Holy crap. Chat's got to go look. Apparently we're hippie. done. Uh, write a review. Tell us that we're doing a good job. Send us a note. Send money. Send all of your money. See you next time. Bye. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.